Matthew 10. Matthew 10, the title of the teaching tonight is Spread the Good News. I want us to look at how they did that in ancient times. But I also want you to go in your Bible to Acts chapter number 8. Because I'd like to read couple of verses in Acts chapter 8, but in Matthew 10 is where I will read first, and I'll just read the first verse. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now come down to verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, that is to say, outside the borders of the promised land, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you can see he told the twelve here to go and to preach. Now let's go to Acts chapter 8, verse number 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered. They were all scattered. Say that word scattered with me. Scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But look at verse 4. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, the, the, the reason I wanted you to see the part there in Acts chapter 8 is because when we look in Matthew 10, where I'm going to primarily be teaching from, uh, you've got the names of 12 disciples who were apostles, all of them male. However, I don't want to leave you with the impression that the only people witnessing for the Lord and proclaiming the good news were men. So as you can see from Acts chapter 8 verse 1, people were scattered, and you can see in verse 4, all of them that were scattered went everywhere preaching. That's going to include male, female, and I'm sure some young people giving evident testimony of who Jesus Christ was. So coming back to Matthew 10... I'm going to have a word of prayer and then we'll teach. Uh, Father, thank you that you have provided us with good news, not bad news, but the best news. And we pray that you'd help each one of us to understand your principles and how it is that you have wanted people to share this good news. Help us to even understand the ministry of the evangelist better. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. Okay, so verse 1, Jesus gives power to his disciples. Only someone who possesses power can give it away. He gave away what he had. Verses 2, 3, and 4 gives us the names of those who received it. Now, these were not the only ones the Lord sent forth in this way. We know from Luke 10, there were 70 others who were not apostles. They were disciples. By disciples, I mean people who heard Jesus proclaim the kingdom message, 
became a follower of Jesus. And the Lord said to those 70, you can go also. And let's not forget that on one occasion, the disciples found a man casting out devils who was not part of either group. And they said, Lord, do you want us to tell him to stop? And the Lord said, no, whoever is not against me is for me. So everybody from these verses all the way to Acts chapter 8 supposed to share the good news, supposed to proclaim the good news, supposed to preach the good news, announce the good news and witness it, a witness of it to every person. Don't let this little wooden box in front of me called a pulpit deter you from talking to someone about the king, because this has nothing to do with whether or not you share the good news, because in ancient times, most places didn't have this anyhow. Folks were teaching from a house. However, I want you to see in verse five, it was the Lord that sent them and he gave them a commandment. He said, go and look at verse seven. When you go, make this proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom of heaven? The rule of God in the earth. That's what it is. Any man or woman who submits their life to the teaching of God comes up under the leadership, the rule and reign of God. That is the kingdom of God in demonstration. All of us are evidences of the reign of God and his kingdom exists wherever his people are. Now we understand he made the heavens and the earth and all people are creation of God because we come from Adam and Eve. But I'm talking spiritually now regarding the kingdom. Wherever a Christian goes, a Christian can say the kingdom of God has come. Let's not, not forget what Paul said. The kingdom of God is within us. It's not meat and drink, but peace, love and, and joy and, and so on and so forth. And the Lord said, don't look for the kingdom of God with outward observation. It's inside of you. And when you're at home and you're on your job and you're talking to people, the kingdom of God is in you. When you open up your mouth to tell what the scripture teaches. You are announcing principles and precepts that govern the kingdom of God. And in verse eight, he tells the disciples to do some very distinct things. He says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils freely. You have received freely give from verse one. You can see he gave them power to do these things. I can fast forward and take you to the end of Matthew, where it says they went forth proclaiming the gospel. And it says Jesus went with them. See, he went with them. And I could also take you to the end of Mark where it says, in my name, you shall do so and so. It's interesting to me that that's a chapter that a lot of the uh, skeptics of the Bible want taken out of modern versions. And a lot of modern versions do. They have it bracketed off. Some don't even have it in the text anymore. It's in a footnote. Everything from Matthew 16, verse 9, all the way down through verse 20. But historically in the church, they believed in it then. And I don't think we ought to stop believing in it now just because some unbelieving scholar has determined that he doesn't want us to believe in it. Well, heal the sick. This indicates that 
as you're going to the covenant people of Israel, people who have heard the law of Moses, who know Exodus 15, 26, I'm the Lord thy God that heals you. He's saying that even in this promised land, they're going to be infirm people. So minister to them. That's what he's saying. That's part of proclamation of the gospel. Cleanse the lepers. How are you going to do that? Minister to them also. Uh, pray for them also. Then this invariably teaches us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're going to be ambassadors and representatives or let's use the word witnesses for him, we can't socially distance from the infirmed. Okay? You can't heal people you're not around. You can't pray for people you're afraid of. And if you think what they have is contagious, you're going to stay away from them. But that's not what he told them. And Jesus never told them to do what he himself was afraid to do. He asked them to do what he himself had already been doing. That's important to know. Understandably, there are people all over the world that don't feel well. And there are all kinds of leper lepers colonies all over planet Earth. I, I realize that. And I don't have any doubt that most of you in here are not going to visit a leper colony. But what I am saying is if you were in a position where you had to go, you need to go and not be afraid. And understand that you have someone in you living who wants you to be a blessing to those people. Now, he even went so far as to say, raise the dead. Elijah, he did that. Elisha did that. Jesus did that on several occasions. We have it in the book of Acts with Peter. And then the situation with Paul where somebody fell down and broke their neck and it looked like he was dead. Might have very well been dead, but surely the person was raised from the dead. And you definitely see it in the book of Revelation when the two witnesses lay dead in the streets for a few days and then they come back to life. This is something, of course, that we don't hear a whole lot about, but I know a whole lot of stories of Things just like this. I have a a friend named Ruth Ann Garlock, who's kind of like a mother in the ministry to Tiffany and I. She's in her 80s. She's written I don't know how many books on prayer and spiritual warfare. And you can't find a, a good Christian bookstore that doesn't have books by Ruth Ann and Quinn Share, written all these books on prayer. Well, her her father-in-law was a man by the name of H.B. Garlock. And I have the book that he wrote years ago called To Kill and Eat You. And it's all about how he went amongst the cannibals of West Africa way back in 1916. Now, he lived up until the 80s. But he took his wife and a couple of his kids were born there, raised there. And he tells about going over there in that community where they had witch doctors and fetishes and all of these things. And he wanted to witness to these people, and he would go to different villages on his bicycle to preach to the village chiefs, because if you could lead them to the Lord, then usually the whole community comes in. Well, one chief told him, you're always telling us these stories about your God and miracles in the Bible, and you say he can open the eyes of the blind and he cleanse the lepers. We got lepers everywhere out here, which they did, and they still do. You go to Africa today, you'll find lepers throughout the marketplace, you'll find them in your churches, 
That stuff is everywhere. And so the gentleman said to him, our witch doctors perform supernatural deeds. And that's why our people follow them. You, you, you show us your God is real. We'll think about becoming a Christian. Well, of course, that put him on the spot and that basically shamed him and made him feel pretty bad. But he went back to his little hut in his village and he just prayed and fasted. He said, God, you just have to give me an opportunity, an open door to be able to show your power. You'll be the one demonstrating it, but I need to be able to manifest your glory through the proclamation of the scripture. Well, he went to a village one time and when he got there to check on one of his friends, he heard all this wailing and screaming. So in the, the villages over there, when someone has died, then everybody gathers around the hut and they just start wailing, making as much noise as possible to show their grief. Well, he found out what had happened and the uh, lady was dead and they were in the process of dragging the body out of the hut to the outskirts of the village because they go through a process of excarnation where they just leave the body up on a mound and let the jackals eat it or just let it dissolve and turn to dust. But he said, Lord, we need you to demonstrate your power. So he called the priest and some of the family members and said, you have said you want a demonstration of God's power. Is this woman dead? They said, she's dead. And that's why we're taking her outside town and lay her up on that mound. He said, I'm going to kneel down here and pray. And if my God raises this woman up, would you believe that Jesus is Lord and become Christian? They said, if your God can raise somebody from the dead, we'll definitely believe. Well, he knelt down there and he prayed. And then afterwards he got up and he had, they kept dragging the body out to the mound. He had to go to another village and some days later, when he came back on his bicycle, then he was asking about his friend and asking about the wife. And they said, well, the wife, she's coming out of the bush country right now, carrying a whole stack of wood on top of her head. And so he called the chief. He said, you told me this woman was dead. He said, well, she was dead. But you prayed and said after you left and this woman who was dead, we drug her out of town. And here she comes back to life and comes walking back into the village. And so uh, H.B., he told them, he said, my God has demonstrated his power. Will you become Christian now? So the whole village knelt down and came to accept Christ. That was how God opened up the West African countries for one man who was sent over there by his denomination to preach Christ. Now, I know a whole lot of stories just like that, people that I've met and known personally who have seen these kinds of things. But here's what Jesus told them. He said, also cast out devils. Again, in the promised land, amongst people that have a covenant with God, there will be people that have the devil inside of them. You have the power to set them free, to expel them, to throw them out. And you do that, of course, with the power of God. So Mark 16 says, in my name, we do that. This is this is how it has to be has to be proclaimed. OK, well, with with that being the case. In verse eight, in the last sentence, it says freely, you've received freely give. Now, every time I read that, I always wonder how it is that the church, which from a legal standpoint is a nonprofit 
organization, we sell everything. We sell cassettes, tapes, or I should say CDs and memory sticks and T-shirts, and we sell hats and everything else to, to make money. And the scripture here says, freely you receive, freely give. So the question then is, should a Christian try to sell the power of God? No. Wouldn't that be incorrect if somebody tried to exploit it that way? In fact, in Acts chapter 8, Philip was ministering to people, and they sent the church in Jerusalem, sent Peter and John down there to pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And then as it was happening, a sorcerer who came to believe, who had been baptized in water, but yet who was a new believer and whose mind certainly hadn't been changed, he ran up to him and said, look, I'll give you two nickels if you give me that power to give people the Holy Spirit like you guys are doing. What did Peter say? Your money perishes with you. But you oftentimes hear people say, if you simply sow some seed into someone's ministry, then the power in that ministry will come to you. It doesn't work like that. Number one, you don't need to sow any kind of seed or trade any kind of money for power because, as I told you before, the kingdom of God is within you. So if Jesus lives in you and you abide in the kingdom of God, you have power because of your relationship with him. You're not trying to purchase something that's already been given to you. Why would you go out and try to buy a car of somebody, buy a car that's already been given to you and it's in your garage? There's no need to do that, you see. But people do that all the time. With this kind of teaching and with these kinds of, you know, supernatural deeds, you can see why in verse 9 the Lord can say to them, don't even concern yourself with gold, silver, and brass in your purses. Now, when I was a teenager, 13 and 14, I wanted to be a preacher, of course, and I wanted to go around the world and preach the gospel. I didn't know how to do it. So I figured my two older brothers were in the military. One was in the Army. The other was in the Marine Corps. And they were constantly calling back home telling me about how wonderful life was for them in traveling and all the things they were doing. So at that time, I thought to myself, okay, I can join the Marine Corps and they will pay me to preach the gospel. They'll send me all around the world. So I can tell people about Jesus. That was my whole point of going into the military. And I figured if I'm going to do it, I might as well go on the hardest one. So I chose, chose, the, chose the Marine Corps. Well, if, if, if it says here, don't worry about gold, silver, and brass, you can see at 13, I was worried about it. Yeah. But a person who's doing verse 8 doesn't usually have to worry about finances because you will always have people who want to help you. Always. You find a minister who truly proclaims the gospel and does it in such a way that people grow in grace and in knowledge. And you will always find God touching the hearts of people who want to give and help them. That's what the Lord was saying. So the, the schemes that people come up with, you don't have to always buy into it. I, I, I would hear all the time that, you know, if you want money for your ministry, then you've got to sell things. So all of my friends, you know, they traveled with, you know, they had tables and they set out all their products and their books and all that. And I never, 
argued with him about that, never even really cared, to be honest. I was just glad somebody was preaching the gospel. I never did that, though. I never did that. In fact, in the churches when we started, started them here, the one thing I always did was I made sure we gave the CDs away, which a lot of churches never understood. How can you give away hundreds of CDs and hundreds of CDs every year and you don't charge people for it? Well, because if the people are enjoying the teaching, they're giving them to people. Sometimes folks are giving their hearts to the Lord and then people are putting the money in the thing and blessing the, the church because of that. Well, in, in, in traveling in ministry, if, if I go into a church and there's a grandma who's been praying for their grandson or granddaughter for years to get saved, and I come in there and minister the word in a, in a powerful way with the Lord really helping, and that child gives their heart to the Lord, you know what grandma and grandpa want to do? They want to help support the ministry. They do. They want to help support the ministry because they want to see somebody else's grandchild come to know who the king is. Well, this is why people who travel like that don't have to spend a whole lot of time worrying about the gold and the silver and the brass. They do have to worry about that if there's nothing happening in their ministry. It's a main concern, a main concern. Again, the people who lay awake at night Dreaming up ways to get money out of people's pockets. I used to wonder about that because it costs a lot of money to, to build stuff, you know. When I would go visit Tiffany and uh, we'd walk around Oral Roberts University, I'd just look at them prayer towers and them praying hands, and we'd walk around the grounds, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, it costs a whole lot of money to, to put all this stuff together. And according to the plan that he had, that's how he built it. And some people believe the concept of seed faith is the only way to raise money to do something. Well, no, that's not true because when before we came up here, we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Tiffany and I would walk around the grounds down there. And I'm telling you, Jimmy Swaggart's church grounds are as big as the city of the town of Hebron. Just to walk around all of that stuff with all of the buildings. And he never one time taught any of that. And he built it all debt free. So then I was starting, uh, starting to see things and understand things in a clear, clear way. And you take someone like D. James Kennedy. Here was a man that was a Presbyterian. He'd get up there on the television and he'd say, look, friends, we're coming to the end of the year. I'm about, oh, three or four million uh, behind. And if you could do something extra, I'd really be pleased. And then come February, then he'd get back on television and say, we've met all of our budget for the previous year, and we're further ahead than we were last year. And you know what I came to realize? People will support the ministry that they believe has a vision and the ministry that touches their heart, not the one that tricks them into giving. If they believe in what someone is saying, if they believe in what someone is teaching, if they believe in what's going on, they'll support it. So this is why... Ministries have pictures and videos and audios so that people will know what's taking place. And then people will give and support. And the reason Paul and Barnabas would come back 
after their missionary journeys and tell the house churches what God did in the various places because they wanted to give a report so that people would concern themselves with what was going on. So here we have it. Freely you've received, freely give. Don't worry about the gold and the silver in your purses. Same thing there in uh, verse number 10, where it's talking about the, the scripts there. You don't have to worry about any of that, your money bags and, and things of that nature. He says, neither two coats nor shoes nor staffs for the workman is worthy of his meat. All of the extra stuff a person would normally take on their trip. He's saying, you don't have to burden yourself with that. The people to whom you minister will make sure you have everything you need. They will. If you need an extra coat, somebody will buy you a coat. Yeah. I've gone places. I can remember when I was in my early 20s, I'd go preach in places and I'd have a nice suit on. And when I would get there, sometimes the people I was preaching to didn't have any idea that when I got there, I had the nice suit on, didn't have any money in my pocket. But yeah, I still had the nice suit and I still had the word of God and the Lord blessed tremendously. And I can't tell you the number of times I've had people during a meeting say, we just want to take you to a men's warehouse or wherever and buy you a suit. Well, I never prayed that God would do that, certainly never asked or even hinted that anything like that would take place. I'm simply saying that if, if you do what you're supposed to do in sharing and spreading the good news, God will do what he needs to do in touching people's hearts to bless you. There will always be people that will support you and people that will love you. It won't ever change. And when he says the workman is worthy of his meat, that's exactly what that means. He's deserving of it. Again, she's deserving of it. Acts chapter 8. All of them went everywhere preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Okay, well, in verse 11, I, I like this because it tells us whatever city or town you go into, ask who's worthy and abide there till you go from there. When it says who's worthy, we're talking about look for somebody of similar precious faith. It's not saying go into a pagan house where somebody's got idols and statues of other things that they worship. Find somebody in that house that does have strong faith, credible faith, good reputation. You don't want to go stay with a thief. And you don't want to stay with someone whose heart isn't right. But verse 12, when you walk into the house, you salute it. In another place it says, you say, peace be unto this house. And if these people aren't what they're supposed to be, the scripture says your peace will return unto you. That is to say that whatever's in you is not going to go into them because these folks are not interested in what you have in you. But he does say in verse 13, if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. Now we know Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We know later Jesus is going to say, my peace I leave with you. So we when we go to visit people and stay with people, it doesn't matter how divisive that house is, how much of a spirit of rebellion is in that house. When you come into that house, you are a peacemaker and you are a bearer of the peace of God. Yeah. And you don't have to be intimidated by somebody else's hostility. Two people could be fighting to the point that where you've got to get in between and try to break them up to keep them from killing each other. But what's in them does not have to get in you. 
You can be strong enough in your faith and in your walk with God that in that house, the peace of God in you that rules your heart takes over that home. But these people have to be willing to receive. So this is why we share the good news and the gospel. Now, verse 14 tells us, whoever won't receive you or hear you, you depart out of that house or city and shake the dust off of your feet. A very, very interesting thing here that today's ministry of evangelism and outreach and tent meetings and stuff like that, think about how we have some very large meetings that have taken place in the last 60 years. Uh, Billy Graham you know, pulled together hundreds of churches, and he'd fill up a stadium with 80,000 people, 90,000 people sometimes. I remember when he came to Cleveland, Ohio, back in 94 or 95, I went over to the AG church there, but to get on to be one of the ushers that they had going to have for the meeting. But I just kind of sat there and listened to some of the stuff they were talking about, what you could not talk about when you were counseling with people. I said, oh, no, that's not for me. But but you have a lot of churches that come together. And these kinds of union meetings have been popular going all the way back to Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, people like that. But again, these are ministries that go where the churches invite them, and they go where the churches want them. But here the scripture in verse 14 talks about you going to places where the people won't even receive you. You won't know who won't receive you until you go. You won't know that your friend is not going to hear your testimony until you talk to them at their front step. See? And the idea that the only way someone today can do evangelism and it be effective is if you get an invitation from the mayor or an invitation from the president of the country. I just think that's just a wrong method. Jesus at no time ever led his disciples to believe the only way I can go into the villages of Israel, all the synagogues have to get together and invite me. And all the rabbis have to sign a letter saying, Jesus, we want you to come. They would have never signed it. He went in because he had the message, he proclaimed the gospel, and good things happened. And that's exactly how we should be. You take people like Charles S. Price, Raymond T. Ritchie, some of these people from 80 years ago, 100 years ago, they went into towns and rented a hall, and the first night after they advertised in the paper, there'd be 25 people that show up. They put a tent up, then they preach the gospel. People would get saved. Then the next night, they might have 40. Then the next night, they might have 50. Then after they've been there a week or 10 days, they start praying for the sick. Then God starts doing wonderful things. Then pretty soon, they got a few hundred. And within six weeks, you've got five and 6,000 people out there. And that's without anybody asking the local Baptist church see, or the, or the local Pentecostal church or the local any church to, to come and participate. Because the one thing this is demonstrating, and it certainly teaches as if God is moving, people will receive what you're saying. They'll just break out of their traditions because they're hungry for what God is doing. And why, why allow yourself to be boxed in to a system that says, if 
I'm not invited somewhere, I won't testify. Share the gospel with whoever you're with. What if someone asks you to go on a long car ride, eight hours, eight hours from here to Texas, and you ride with them for eight hours, and they get there, and they bring you back, that's 16 hours, and then during that time, at no time, do they ever know you're a Christian. Isn't there something wrong? Yeah, they should know. They should know. You say, well, pastor, what if I witness to them and and they tell me I've got to get out the car (laughs) or along the side of the road? Well, let's get out along the side of the road and thumb it. But (laughs) share the gospel. Be wise, you know, but, but, but share the gospel. Folks will never know who Jesus is if we allow fear to intimidate us. And that's exactly what the devil wants. He, 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 wants, he wants grandmothers and grandfathers to not share the gospel with their children and grandchildren because here's the threat. I won't bring the grandchildren around you if you're going to open up your mouth and be talking about your religion. See, that's the devil. That is the devil. The devil wants to try to separate people from the truth. Okay, so if, if someone doesn't hear what you have to say, you just shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. I hope you never have to do that. I've never had to do that to, to my knowledge, but I certainly have had uh, places where people weren't interested in how we were ministering the gospel, sharing the gospel. Then you just go somewhere else. Yeah, just go somewhere else. If that door closes, find another place. Verse 15 says, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What is he saying? He's saying the people that won't hear what you have to say, it's because of the sin and the pride and the arrogancy and the self-righteousness in their heart. And they're going to be judged for it just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. But he does tell us in verse 16 that he's sending us forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves are ferocious. And by virtue of the fact that the Lord contrasts them in this verse, you can see there's supposed to be some kind of difference between them. You don't ever see sheep and wolves laying down together, and you won't until maybe the millennium. The only way you're going to see a sheep lying down with a wolf today, that sheep's going to be in a wolf's belly. It's not going to be any other way. That's going to happen right now. But if you consider what the Lord is saying, wolves run in packs. They're vicious. They go after the weak. They go after the strong. They'll overpower their prey. Whatever they have to do, they'll attack. But sheep, how do they defend themselves? I mean, even a praying mantis can look like a a twig in the midst of a bunch of in the midst of a bush, and you'd not really be able to tell that he's there because he knows how to be still. A chameleon is able to change a few colors here and there. A frog, if it's swallowed by something, it can secrete something through its glands so that it won't be so tasty. Even an octopus can emit some kind of an ink and just kind of get away from, from a predator in the middle of all of that. But sheep, dumb as a rock. Yeah. I mean, what kind of defense mechanism is there? They run right to the predator, you know. They're looking for a shepherd 
somebody to protect them. And this is why a shepherd with a staff is needed. So the Lord said, I send you forth as sheep. He said, I expect you by nature and by temperament to be different than the wolves. And we are. And all over this earth, Christians are highly persecuted because most religious fanatics know that Christians are not going to be out there putting up a physical fight with them. And we hear stories all the time of Christians that are being murdered, slaughtered. I mean, the stories right now coming out of Central Africa, I'm talking about Niger, Chad, places like that, where uh, Muslim folks are going into these villages, riding in at sunset, and then going from house to house asking, are there any Christians here? And then taking a machete and hacking them to death and looking for pastors and pastors having to run down to the nearest river or someplace just to be able to hide. It is because we're sheep in the midst of wolves. And this has been going on since ancient times, ever since the, the, the church was established with the first martyr, Stephen, being a proof of the fact that wolves will attack, even when they have the same ethnicity, religious background, Jewish people attacking Jewish people because of their belief in Jesus Christ. So we're sent forth as sheep, but he says, be wise as serpents. What are serpents like? Cunning, smart. Uh, snakes, boy, they'll be right there in your presence and you not even know they're there. Can't stand them things. Sometimes I'll be out cutting the grass and, and there'll be one of them black ones with a yellow a stripe curled up somewhere in the grass. And then when I'm walking, of course, then it, it, it just takes off real fast. And then I'm, I'm, I, the first thing that hits me is I'm startled. And then instant fear comes. And then from fear, I go to anger. And then with the anger, then I'm just out there. And I'm sure the neighbors are looking at Daryl like, oh, my goodness, he found another snake. Because, I mean, I'm out there stomping that thing until it won't move again. And then, of course, my neighbor likes to let me know where they're good for the, the ecosystem. They eat insects and rodents. I said, well, you keep them in your yard, but all of them here are dying. They're dying. Yes. Okay, so... He says, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. They're the prey of just about every kind of big bird. Good thing about doves, they, they mate for life. But they, they, they are not like hawks. Okay? And they, they are not like owls. And they're not like falcons at all. But he says... But beware of evil men, for they will deliver you up to councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues and you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake for testimony against them. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you're going to speak for to be given to you in the same hour. Verse 20, the spirit of your father, which is in you, will speak. Now, I've heard people take these verses to say, I don't really need to study to preach the gospel all I need to do is just get up and we'll just see what the Lord's going to say. Well, I've sat through enough of those sermons to just think to myself, you should have went on and studied. Yeah, you should, you should have went on and pulled the books out and studied. This isn't talking about that. This is talking about when, because of your faith, you are brought before authority figures. And you're wondering what in the world I'm going to say to defend myself. 
Because now here's somebody, the superintendent has called you in because of your, your, you know, your job, you witness to somebody, and now the superintendent is mad and want to know, why are you around here pushing your faith on people? And you can't always prepare the right kind of an answer for somebody, but God will give you the right words, and it'll confound them sometimes with what you say. That's what Jesus did plenty of times. Paul even did it one time. He was standing in front of him and they asked him a question and he realized half of them were Pharisees. The other half were Sadducees. He said, I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. Well, the Sadducees, like many uh, people today who deny there is a resurrection from the dead, deny there are angels and deny there is a spirit or any divine supernatural activity. Whereas the Pharisees say, This stuff did happen. It's in the Bible. It's just not happening now. And so right there, they got into a big, huge debate and argument. So as a a Christian, then we read the word, we study the word so that we can give an answer to anybody who asks us about the hope that lies within us. Yeah. You don't have to be eloquent, but you do need to be learned in what the book says. And nobody's going to be upset because you're stuttering or you can't remember where all the the verses and chapters are just know the story you know do try to get it right don't try to tell about daniel building the ark okay i mean have have the facts right you know you don't want to talk about ezekiel the baptist the forerunner before jesus came but you can see then If Jesus is sending them out here into these places, he understands you're going to face the same thing I'm facing right now. In verse 21, it gets so bad that you've got siblings betraying one another. You ever seen that up close and personal? I've seen marriages where one party becomes a Christian and then the other party gets upset and says, I didn't marry you because I wanted to be married to a Bible thumper. I didn't say yes, and I do, because I want to spend the rest of my life with you hammering me about going to church and reading the Bible. Yeah, a lot of people turn on on one another. Jesus said this certainly was going to happen. Verse 22, you'll be hated for my name's sake, but he that endured to the end shall be saved. He didn't say you'll be hated because you're Jewish. He didn't say you'd be hated because of how you dress. He didn't say you'd be hated because you're wealthy or poor. He said you'll be hated for my name's sake. The fact that you identify with me, it happened. It's happening. I don't know what it is about the the story of Christ's death. The scripture says to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But to everybody else, it's an offense. you You tell the story about God, loving the world, he sent his son. His son then climbed up on that cross and died. Having done all these wonderful things with great glorious teachings in the Gospels as they're recorded here. But when you tell that story about his death and then his resurrection, there's something in that story that troubles people. The idea that the Romans betrayed him. That the Jewish hierarchy betrayed him. And when, when people hear that story and you're letting them know that He bore our sins on the cross and only through him we can be saved. That disturbs a whole lot of people because you're saying to people now they're sinners. 
And there are very few things that are as offensive as telling a man or woman that he or she is a sinner. You tell somebody they must be born again, you're saying to them there's something wrong about how they were born the first time. And they don't want to hear that. And, and, and the cross, it, it displays that vividly, especially when it's told the way it should be told. And the scripture says the preaching of the cross is the power of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to save to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That name brings hatred. And you'll talk to people and they'll get upset because of certain stories in the Bible. If they do want to identify with Jesus, it will only be with those aspects of Jesus that agree with their personal belief. But anything that's contrary to what they believe, they'll say, well, I just don't think that's that's scriptural or that's God. You know, how can how can we have a God like that? My wife and I had a a woman tell us one time, I just don't even bother with the Old Testament because I don't like that God. I just I just like Jesus. I said, well, last time I checked, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost were one. And what you're reading about in the Old Testament, you're reading about Christ. Yeah, you're reading about the Holy Spirit. You may not like the way that God manifests in dealing with a sinful world in Noah's day. But you don't have to like it. You're not God. And you don't get to judge God. He wrote the book. He did all of this. And at no time does he ever say, Daryl, you know, I'm really looking for your approval right now. He's not looking for it at all. I, I read the book of Revelation sometimes when I'm having to teach on prophecy in different places. And I look at that and say, oh, my goodness. Wow. That out of that river Euphrates going to come these angels that are bound and there's going to be trouble. And I'm looking at stuff being poured out in the earth. And that stuff is just terrible when I look at that. But you know what? It causes me to fear and love God even more. I don't sit back and say, well, that doesn't agree with my belief. So that can't really be true. We are not called to mold God in the image that we want him to have, but to be conformed to the image that he's provided. So verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, just go to another. That's what he said, just just run to another. So persecution is going to come, but the Lord doesn't consider it a lack of faith if you move to another location. There's some people think that is a lack of faith. You just need to stand there and just just fight. Well, the Lord wants the, the message to go to where it'll be received. You shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Well, ancient Israel had a whole lot of cities. And ancient uh, modern Israel has a whole lot of cities right now. And there still are a lot of people in Israel don't know God. I, I'd say when, when I lived there back in uh, 96, probably 50, 55% of the nation were atheists. That's Israel. Yeah, that's Israel. Most people are just startled when they hear that because they just honestly believe since it was a great miracle and God put it together in 1948, that everybody came home with the belief that this is God. No, they came home with the belief that this is Zionism and that this land is theirs because of a title deed that Abraham had and a promise made to him. But their faith 
If you can call it that, doesn't go any further than the belief that they think that's their land. But trust in God, belief in God, you don't find a whole lot of that. You will find it with the Orthodox Jews who dress in black and have the long curls and have the little coverings on their head. You will find that in their families with anywhere from five to 14 kids, they believe supernatural aspects of God. And that is they come home to Israel. God is causing the land to flourish. But atheism is rife. And the people who were the original Zionists that were returning to Israel, many of them didn't believe in God. See? Arthur Balfour, a man who we always talk about for the declaration, you know, to get Israel going. That man was involved with seances and witchcraft and talking to the dead and everything else. Nevertheless, just like God used Caiaphas to prophesy about somebody to die at the uh, time of the uh, Passover, God used that man to get a document signed so people can come home. And it's against the law right now for a Christian to publicly witness in Israel. It's against the law today for a Jewish person to convert to Christianity. And if you do, you can lose your citizenship and be kicked out of the country. But yet Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me first in Jerusalem, then Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. We are to tell the good news and spread the good news even where people don't want to hear it and to people who don't want to hear it. And that's the same here in this county too. Yeah, God wants people to know the truth. It hurts me to say that when Jesus' disciples traveled throughout Israel, they had to preach the kingdom of God to people who honestly believed they were right with God and didn't even know they weren't right with God. And imagine today you trying to witness to people around here in this region or in other places who honestly believe they are saved from their sin and don't have the first clue what it means to be born again. You know it when you ask them, say, tell me how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And they just get that look in their eyes like, what in the world are you talking about? See? Yeah. Okay. Let's pray. Father, We are so happy that the kingdom of God is one of demonstration. And we are not a people who are to be afraid of the culture or the environment in which we live. The kingdom of God is within us. We pray that you would help each one of us, Lord, to be able to share the good news with any and all that will listen. And I pray you'd multiply and grow our church and other churches that preach the true gospel. Oh God, let us know that there's no other name under the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And as they prayed in Acts chapter 4, stretch forth your hand to do wonders in the name of Jesus. Amen, 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 amen.